Good morning. I hope as Joe was reading that passage, bring us to worship, bring us to um, yeah, a greater understanding of what Christ did for us on the cross. This morning, I'm going to preach on the cross, our greatest gift, and I know I'm only going to scratch the surface. Um, this is a wonderful topic. It's a wonderful thing to talk about, but as I started studying, I realized there is so much to preach, so much to talk about on the cross, um, probably barely touch um, the surface of, of the topic on the cross. David Ravenhill said in his book, Bloodbought, if we fail to understand the full message of the cross, our very foundation is questionable and our faith is faulty at best. So this morning I'd like to preach on the importance of the greatest gift God gave us, the cross. For many years as a youth, I think, or I should say as a youth, for many years, um, I heard the story of Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, and I don't believe it hit me very hard. Um, I don't think I really understood what the cross of Jesus should have meant to me. I don't think I understood the power of the gospel, the great news of the cross. It's only been in the last uh, maybe four or five years that I'm really seeing and grasping or trying to understand what the cross is really about. I believe the cross should be something we talk about all the time, should be discussed. It should bring us to tears, and it should always bring us to worship. If it doesn't do this for us, I question whether we really understand what the cross is about. I believe like never before, we need to get back to a cross-centered preaching, teaching, and living. I remember in Bible study, um, my parents' Bible study, Aaron Glick was part of that. Maybe a name some of you have heard and remember, or remember Aaron Glick. Um, and I remember, I think, one memory I have was um, we had Bible study at Ben and Barb's and Aaron Glick was standing next to us, um, standing next to me after we were having, um, after our class where us eight, nine, ten year olds were um, together and we got back to testimony time and singing and um, Aaron Glick was giving one of his long, long, long prayers. And I remember him praying something about the cross and tears were running down his eyes, um, and I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. Why, why the tears? Why the long prayer? Um, and I think as I am getting older, I think I understand what brought him to tears that, that day and, and why he loved the cross so much. I believe in our conservative Anabaptist churches, we may have gotten away from the teaching of the cross. I know that, um, and I believe that. And I'm not sure I completely understand why, because of its importance, other than Satan will constantly try to take us away from the cross. It may be partly because um, some of the evangelical churches have focused on the cross and may have not lived out what the cross really means, that we have decided we should maybe not talk about the cross as much and talk more about how to live out our everyday life. And I think that's just two ditches. We often find ourselves in one of these ditches on the cross. <clears throat> um, but I think it's important for us to find the center line and keep cross-focused in our church. 
Satan is going to do everything he can to keep us from talking about the cross. He loves to keep us away from the cross, and he will use any excuse he can to keep us from understanding and appreciating it and talking about the cross. Our practical everyday life should be a walk centered around the cross. If we believe in practical Christian living, we will do that well and right when we center around the cross. I'm convinced we as a church could do much more to take the cross as the center of our lives. It should be the center of our theology, the center of our Christian walk, the center of our church. It should be paramount at church here at Weavertown. Let's do what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.2. For I'm ashamed not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Think about that. Nothing among us except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's cross-centered. I know Paul talked about the resurrection a lot, um, and I'm not trying to take away from the resurrection, but I think Paul made it very clear that it should be cross-centered, and he's going to keep his focus on Christ and Christ crucified. So this morning I just want to talk about give three reasons why I think we should emphasize the cross, um, and then I'm going to give two sides to the cross. The first reason I have is because the cross is the crux of the matter. And the word crux, you may guess, means the cross. The crux comes from the Latin word used for cross. We now use that word crux in our English dictionary to mean decisive, the most important point in the issue. I think that says it well. The cross is the most important point at hand. Without it, you have nothing, but with it, you have everything. 2,000 years ago, at a bloody execution site in Jerusalem, the cross became the heart of everything we believe in. It became the reason we came to church this morning. Um, it became the reason we as Christians live the faith we live. This morning, I'd like to take you back to the cross, back to that execution site where Jesus died to take away my sins, our sins, the sins of the whole world. Bob Sorge, in his book, The Cross, says it this way about that bloody execution site. I can't conceive of a greater honor than to bring your meditations to this cross. And then he goes on to describe that site where, he came to receive, where we came to re receive our salvation. He says it this way. Let's go there together, stand before him in wonder, and worship. Behold the iron nails in each hand and foot. Look at the thorns hammered into his skull. Observe his skin and flesh flayed open and, and scourged raw. He is gasping, he's jerking in contorted spasms. People are mocking, demons are raging. Plus, he is swallowing the cup of the Father's wrath against my sins. Now, if that doesn't drive us to emotion, then we probably don't really appreciate or understand the cross. That was Jesus Christ dying for who? For my sins, for me, for each one of us who accept him. When the cross is before us, we have no place else to look but at the cross. It becomes the most important thing in our lives. It changes everything about how we live. Does that make sense? When the cross is in front of us and we can't think of anything else, it will change the way we practically live our day, the way we walk, the way we live our life. The cross is the center of our faith because it is the center of our Father's heart. 
I'm persuaded that what Jesus did on the cross is what God feels most passionately about. And if God feels most passionately about that, I think it's very clear we should feel most passionately about it also. Nothing, never, nothing ever has moved God's heart as when he watched his only son endure the inimaginable horror of the cross. He suffered with Jesus every minute of that cross and will never forget the act of love that Jesus did on the cross for our redemption. We all know the verse John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That verse says, for God so loved the world. It doesn't say Jesus so loved the world. God, and I know we know Jesus did, but God in his mercy and his great love for each one of us allowed his son to die on the cross. The cross is our salvation, is what brought us about in redemption, is what brought about our redemption. Only through the cross will we be saved. And I know you've heard that many times, um, and I'm going to tell you again um, to keep it fresh and keep it new. But if we're not getting the cross and it doesn't impact us, we may, we may need to check our Christian pulse. We should be asking the question, are we really born again? And this morning, if we hear from the cross or any time we hear about the cross and it doesn't impact us, we better take a check on our pulse and our Christian pulse. Are we really born again if, we don't, if we're not impacted by the cross? You see, because the cross saved us today, from a life of sin and the future from going to hell, the cross becomes the most important thing in our lives. Second reason I have for emphasis is because we are lost sinners in desperate need of a Savior. So if we're lost sinners in desperate need of a Savior, we need the cross. Paul says in 1 Timothy, I was before a blasphemer, persecutor, injurious, but I obtained mercy. That was all, and that was each one of us, right? If we don't understand that, um, we don't need a Savior, then we don't need the cross. Jesus came and reconciled us or saved us from our sins in Colossians 1.20. And having made peace through the blood of the cross, by him reconciled all things unto himself. And I think for many of us who grew up in Christian zone and have done mostly good things in our lives, I think too often we don't appreciate the cross enough. We think we don't need it. We're think, we think our sins were just a little bad, not real bad. We don't really understand our desperate need for the cross, our desperate need for a Savior. We often forget, like it says in Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's a big problem. If we don't understand how desperately sinful we are, we will never understand what God did, what Christ did for us on the cross. We are desperately sinful and in need of a Savior. This is something we need to talk about and also to pass on to our children. Without understanding our sin, we will never understand our need for the cross. T.J. Mahoney, in his book, The Cross-Centered Life, says it this way about teaching his son about his need for the Savior. I'm going to read this. Um, I just think this is good for a church like ours who has a lot of good people in. But I think we forget how desperately wicked, how desperately sinful we are. I grew up in this church. Um, and there was good people around me, and I kind of thought I was good myself. Um, and I think sometimes we forget to preach um, to good people our desperate need for the Savior. This, this is what he says about passing this on to our sons, and I think this is something about passing this on to the next generation of, 
of, peop- of children. Regardless of our past, we all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. My nine-year-old son, Chad, like Chad's life is very different from mine. He's being raised in a Christian home. He's been taught God's word. And unlike his father, he's surrounded by people in a local church with respect, godliness, and humility. But as Chad enters young adulthood, the most important thing I can teach him is that even though he's being raised in a Christian home and he's leading a moral life, he is a sinner who is desperately needs the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. And so I'm teaching him the gospel day by day. I tell him that he's a sinner, just like his dad, and that sin is a serious problem. I put it in words that this young mind can understand, but I don't ignore or minimize the seriousness of sin. Through his actions and attitudes, he has rebelled against his maker, and his great God is perfectly holy and, most, and must respond with fierce opposition to sin. He must punish it. Some might think it's surprising that I would teach a nine-year-old about God's wrath towards sin, but I find it surprising that any loving person with, would withhold this truth from another person they love, because only when we understand God's wrath towards sin can we realize that we need to be saved from it. Um, I think fathers, moms, we need to teach our children, even the good ones, that we are desperately in need of a Savior because we are desperately sinful. The third thing I have is because the cross was one of God's greatest accomplishments, if not the greatest accomplishment here on earth. In fact, it took the whole Trinity to accomplish the cross. And this is what I'd like to talk about. I'd like to just go over who or where each person of the Trinity was in the cross, at the cross, at Golgotha. First of all, what was God the Father's role or what was he doing at the cross? I'm going to go over this just to help us understand um, the great magnitude of the cross and what was going on. God the Father's rule at the cross often becomes very skewed because we live in a world that doesn't like to talk about sin, about guilt, about hell, and how to deal with guilty sinners, especially like me. We believe that God can just look at sin, love the sinner, doesn't have to be a perfect judge. In his holiness, he can just overlook sin especially at the cross. But is that possible? Can the perfect judge overlook my sins? Can he overlook any sin? I think we know the answer. A perfect judge has to do something about that sin. And that's what the cross was about. If we understand our loving Father can't and will not overlook sin, it becomes much easier for us to understand God's rule at Calvary. Remember John 3.16? God so loved the world... He loved us, and he had a role to play in Calvary. We know God's, God loves us, and we know he loved the world, but how did he do this at the cross? How did God love the world at the cross? God's work at the cross was to deal with our sins. And what could he do about our sins? Think about that. What, can he, what could he do with my sins at the cross? We know that answer, and that's, I'm sorry. Could he come to the cross as a faithful father and faithful judge and overlook my sins? Is this what a good judge would do? I think we know that answer. So what was his job? And this is where it gets hard. His job was to pour the wrath of sin 
On who? On his beloved son. Now, if that doesn't move us, my sin, what I did, was poured on his perfect beloved son. Bob Sorge in his book says it this way, he was expending the, eternity, the entirety of his wrath upon his son. Imagine that, dads. He was tipping the cup of his wrath, emptying out all the contents of his wrath on his son. And then when he was finished doing this, and his son was crying out to him, he turned his face from him. And why? We say, how can a loving God do that? Because of the entirety, because of our sins, because of our wickedness. He turned his face and forsook him, and this, <clears throat> and this he had to do because of our sins. Some people call that child abuse. Some people say, I can't believe in that. It's called the penal substitution of Christ. Um, but I am convinced that God could not deal with our sins other than somebody else taking it. Or couldn't deal with our sins other than somebody else taking his wrath. And why do you do this? Why did God do this? Because he loved me and you that much. Isn't that awesome? It's hard to understand, maybe hard to believe, but this was the extent of his loving plan of redemption for me. If you ask, how can a loving God ever do that to his son? I will say, how great a love our father has for a rebel like me. I'm convinced this plan wasn't an afterthought, but was a perfect plan of salvation. That's the cross. That's the plan of the cross. That is what took place at the cross. I believe we downplay what God did at the cross. If we downplay what God did at the cross, we soften the Calvary message of love for us. We destroy the real meaning of the cross just because we can't picture a loving God doing this to his son. I believe really what's behind a lot of this, uh, behind people not understanding or accepting this, is God's rule at the cross is trying to downplay our desperately wicked sins. We'd like, to make it, we'd like to make ourselves believe it doesn't take that drastic a step to take care of me. I'm not that bad that God would have to pour out his wrath on his son. Brothers and sisters, we are. And that was the only thing that was going to save us. Next question is, what was Jesus doing at the cross? I think we know this. We all know the answer. He was suffering the excruciating pain of the cruel cross and the cup of wrath towards our sins. And yes, even the word excruciating, for you English scholars, has the word crux in it, which means the cross. So when we think of excruciating pain, we can go right back to the cross and think about the greatest pain man had, or God had on, Christ had on the cross. Jesus was being executed by the worst possible execution method and bore that excruciating pain so I can live. But again, the physical pain of the cross was not the hardest thing Jesus bore, but the cup he was asked to take was by far the hardest thing. In Matthew 26, 42, he went away the second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may, you, may your will be done. He was crying out, not about the cross, the pain of the cross, but the cup of the cross, taking on the wrath of his Father for my sins. He was drinking the cup of the wrath that we deserved for our sins, the wrath that the Father was pouring on him. And Jesus took every drop of that bitter cup, the one I deserved, 
and took it upon himself so I can be saved. What a wonderful, loving Lord who was willing to die and take all that on for me. So what was the Holy Spirit doing here? We don't know a whole lot about that, but I can guess the Holy Spirit was there kind of like he does for us, coaching um, Christ. It says in Hebrews 9.14, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through, maybe we could say, with the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God. With the Holy Spirit, um, I believe the Holy Spirit was there next to Christ encouraging him in this great moment. It doesn't say much about the Holy Spirit at the Calvary, but it does say that Christ through the Spirit offered himself for us. I'm convinced he was there um, to encourage him. The cross was such a big task, it took the whole Trinity to take part in this effort. That's why I believe the cross can never be overemphasized. It was the most important event in the history of the world. Now I'm going to talk about the two sides of the cross um, the sub- and I'm going to start with the substitutionary side. But God dem- demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. I think most of us understand that Jesus died in our place. He was our substitute. He took the wrath we deserved. All of us are sinful, and all of us are too sinful to make it to heaven without Jesus Christ dying on the cross. He was our substitute or our propitiation, like it says in 1 John 2, 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the substitutionary nature, one that I think um, we hear a lot about, which I spoke uh, quite a bit about already this morning. Um, And I'm just going to give two stories or illustrations that maybe um, help us think through about this substitute, about what... Christ did in substituting um, and being our substitution on the cross. First story I found in the book called Written Blood um, by Robert Coleman. And the story goes like this, of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had the same disease the boy had recovered from two years earlier. Her only chance of recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered that disease. Since the two children had the same rare blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. Would you give your blood to, the, to marry your sister, the doctor asked? John, Johnny hesitated. His lower lip started to tremble. And then he smiled and said, sure, for my sister I'd do that. As the two children were wheeled into the, nurse, into the hospital room, Mary's pale, thin face and Johnny's robust, healthy body, neither spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. As the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's smile faded. He watched the blood flow through the tube. With the ordeal almost over, his voice slightly shaking broke the silence. Doctor, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny had hesitated, why his lip had trembled when he agreed to donate his blood. He thought giving his blood to his sister meant giving up his life. In that brief moment, he made his his great decision. Johnny, he made... A great decision. Johnny didn't have to die to save his sister, but Christ had to die to save someone much worse than his sister. Second illustration I have may help us understand what Jesus did on the cross. And this was um, something that took place, or an event, a true event, that took place on May 21st, 1946. 
The place was Los, Los Almos. Um, a young and daring scientist was carrying out a necessary experiment in preparation for the atomic test to be conducted in the waters of the South Pacific. So this was over the time of World War II. Um, and there was a scientist, a doctor, that was figuring out or who was um, working on, a scientist, I'm sorry, he was working on the atomic bomb. He had successfully performed such an experiment many times before, and in his effort to determine the amount of U-235 necessary for a chain reaction, scientists call it the critical mass, he would push two hemispheres of uranium together, and then just as the mass became critical, he would push them apart with his screwdriver, thus instantly stopping the chain reaction. But that day, just as the material became critical, the screwdriver slipped. The hemisphere of uranium came too close together. Instantly, the room was filled with dazzling bluish haze. Young Louis Sultan, instead of ducking and thereby possibly, possibly saving himself, he tore the two hemispheres apart with his hands and thus interrupted the chain reaction. By this instant, he saved the lives of the seven other people in the, in the room. As he waited for the car that was taken that was to take him to the hospital, he said quietly to his companion, you'll come through all right, but I haven't the faintest chance myself. It was, the only, <clears throat> it was only too true. Nine days later, he died in agony of the um, atomic reaction. Many, many years ago, Jesus at Calvary walked directly into the sin's most, most concentrated radiation allowed, and allowed himself to be touched by its curse and let it take and let it take his life. Because he loved us, and because of our desperate need of a Savior, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead. Jesus broke the chain reaction of the power of sin. This was the, sub this was the substitutionary nature of the cross. But I think the cross has two sides to it, um, and I'm going to talk about the second side. Substitutionary nature of the cross is not the only message of the cross. This is the side we hear a lot about. This is the side which... This is a side that's such a wonderful part of our life. It gives us the faith that we live in. We love these illustrations and stories about Jesus and his substitute and him healing us and delivering us from redemption. But there's also another side to the cross, one that's often spoken of today, the one that's not often spoken of today and talked about, but it's found a lot in the New Testament by the early, um, by, written by Paul and by um, early church fathers. The other side of the cross is the identificational side of the cross. And you say, what's that? Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This side of the cross is where Jesus went to the cross not only to save us, but to do what? To set an example for us. To do what? to take up our cross and follow him. This is where Jesus went to the cross, not only to save us, but to set that example. This side, we are to identify with Christ and take up our cross and follow him. 1 Peter 2, 21 says this, For, un <clears throat> for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us as an example that we should follow in his footsteps. Now, this is the part of the cross that I think we too often don't want to hear because it means suffering. It means us taking up the cross. It's the other side of the cross um, that I think um, 
is probably the hardest part of the cross for us to accept. I want to make it clear this, that this side of the cross for us is nothing compared to what Jesus bore for us. So when you think you're taking the cross and following him, remember, Christ did much more than that. It's just a small part of, of what Christ did. But it is the side of the cross required for us if we're going to follow him. And I'm convinced of that. It's the side we forget, the side we don't want to talk about, but the side that is so important for us to understand too. In fact, the message of whosoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whosoever seeks to lose his life will save it was Jesus' most common teaching. Did you know that? There's no other teaching in the, Bible, in the New Testament that he spoke of more often. He gave four different times in the New Testament, different times in the Gospels, where he talked about losing our life for him. It was his only teaching that was given on four different occasions. Jesus knew the value of the cross, not only for what it did for us in redemption, but what it will do for us when we identify with him in the cross. Now see, this wasn't done just to give us suffering so we can suffer like Christ, and so we can um, suffer too, because he suffered, we deserve to suffer. That's not why. He did it for our good. Suffering is something, we talked about that in, um, in Sunday school today. Suffering is for our good. Um, it helps us identify with Christ. One reason I believe we struggle and don't understand this side of the cross is because it looks like it's a contradiction. Didn't Jesus die for us and take away our suffering we deserved? Is that true? Yes, he did. But why is he asking us to take up our cross and follow him then? Does the cross save us from suffering or does it lead us into suffering? This is a great paradox. But isn't the Christian life a great paradox? Can we experience resurrection without suffering? Of course not. That's not logically, wouldn't make logical sense. You can't raise, you can't be resurrected if you don't die. Um, can we experience life without death? Paul said, I die daily, but when he goes on, but then he goes on to say, if we are weak in him, then shall we live? That don't make sense. He also said in 2 Corinthians 4.10, I always carry in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Sounds like a contradiction. This is the part of the cross too often we don't want to be a part of. It seems bitter and hard, but it's the part of the cross that brings us the greatest joy. And I know that's easy words to say, a lot harder to live. I don't believe we can decide I want to be part of the cross, but not all of the cross. In fact, when the children of Israel were asked to eat the Passover lamb, they were required to eat all of it. And I'm not sure what all that meant, but one writer said that took place so the children of Israel understand that the good parts and the bad parts are going to be a part of their life. Paul talked a lot about... <clears throat> wanted to remind them that we need to experience joy and sorrow of walking with God, and we can't have one without the other. Paul talked a lot about enemies of the cross. And what did he mean by that? Philippians 3, 18 to 19, he says this, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross. Now, I hope 
We at Weavertown aren't enemies of the cross. Let's read a little more and find out who the enemies of the cross were. Whose end is their destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. These enemies want to walk a path that Jesus didn't walk. None of us are enemies of the substitutionary nature of the cross. All of us would agree that, yeah, we, don't want to, uh, we love what the Lord did for us on the cross and taking our place. We are glad Jesus suffered and died for our place, for what we deserve. He took our stripes so that we can be healed. He absorbed God's wrath so we can be free. The enemies of the cross have no problem with this, with this side of the cross. In fact, I believe when Paul was talking about the enemies of the cross, he was talking about people in their church. He wasn't talking about somebody out there. They knew about the cross, but they didn't want the other side of the cross. I'm afraid if I understand and know the part of the cross that makes so many of us enemies of the cross is the part that asks us to suffer, to take up our cross and follow him. We can't believe in the cross and not take up our cross. A few verses before that, in um, those verses in Philippians that talk about the enemy of the cross, in verse 10 it says this, that I may know him and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. So those verses, just two verses before that, where he starts talking about the enemies of the cross, it talks about the suffering of the cross. And I think it's very clear. The enemies of the cross are the ones who don't want to take up the cross and follow him. Enemies of the cross are those who want to receive the benefits of the cross without the personal suffering of the cross. They're willing to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, but unwilling to know him in the fellowship of his suffering. Paul says the end is their destruction. It's not possible. They can't do it. When we speak of the cross, we need to be reminded there are two sides of the cross. We can't just have part of the cross. No resurrection happens without suffering. I do want to remind us when we're suffering, it's always a shared suffering. We're willing to accept the invitation of suffering with Christ because we love him and because he first loved us. He has suffered in ways we will never have to. And now in gratitude and affection, we want to share that journey with him. That's the shared suffering of Christ. That's taking the cross and following him. Just remember, our accuser, Satan, hates our father and will try to make us believe our father is oppressive. He's heavy-handed. He's mean. He's hateful. If the cross would end with only the suffering, we would have to call our Father cruel and unkind. But it didn't end there. The Father extended all his kindness to his Son and raised him and gave him a name above all names. The cross is never meant to be the last chapter. In our suffering, there's always resurrection. 1 Peter 4:13. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the suffering of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The other side of the cross, the suffering side that brings joy um, when his glory is revealed. Remember when Christ endured the cross, he was resurrected and given a name above all names. I believe it's that way for us today, even here on earth. When we endure suffering, when we endure suffering, God always brings about resurrection in our lives and brings us to a much better place. Let's remember this week and every day of our lives, to keep our focus on the cross, on ourselves and both sides of the cross. I want to close with Don Wilkerson's 
um, quote, the cross is our template for our journey in God. It is our center, our anchor, our GPS, our wisdom. Let's spend this week clinging to the cross, never forgetting what God, the Father, God, the Son, did for us there on Calvary. Let's kneel together. Prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to take this time to thank you for what you've done for us on the cross, the wonderful gift you've given us. And God, we don't want to spur that gift. We want to talk about it. We want to remember it. We want to live our lives in a way that um, brings glory and honor to you and um, brings a focus on the cross. Help us this week as we go about our week, um, as we experience whatever uh, thing we experience, whether it's suffering, whether it's joy, um, that each, each occasion, everything we deal with, everything we do, would bring our eyes to you. Thank you again for your love and your faithfulness in our lives and for your, um, for the, your cross and the wonderful gift you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.